Okay, now Mitch is saying we can go. So I want to take advantage of all the time we have. I think we have an hour. We'll try to get you okay. out of there. I'm really excited to talk to you about this subject. Let me tell you the way um, this idea came about. Um, it, this is something I hear all the time when I'm just out in the community, and it's even come up in our production group as, you know, a member of our production team had a baby. And I think um, <clears throat> there are so many there are so many people now <clears throat> um, first of all, we're living in a pluralistic society. And then many people have pluralistic marriages, right, or families. And many people are also coming to parenting these days without being anchored to traditions <clears throat> in a way that I think maybe more people were in, in previous generations. And yet people have children. I'm sure you hear this all the time, too. And I, <clears throat> sorry, I see that coming through in, your, in when you write about it, that then they have children and they suddenly they realize that there is that aspect of their children. They want to be able to delve into that, to to be nurturing of that, and they don't have a clue how to begin. And so we wanted to kind of create an hour of radio to open up that question and give some insight. And I, I'm, you know, as I have been reading you the last few days, I mean, I think this really is something you know about. And um, so, let, I mean, let's start with, um, you know, how you came to be to have as as a focus the spirituality of children and parenting. And um, let's just start there. Um, was this something that you were always interested in? Actually, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in until I had my own children and until I worked in a congregation and spent a lot of time with the young people uh, in our religious school. And I was discovering that young children had big questions, Mm -hmm. uh, deep questions, and they were in some ways, quote-unquote, little theologians. And I also discovered that nobody was answering those questions, Mm -hmm. that most of the teaching and most of the books that uh, existed had to do more with answers, more with ritual, more with ceremony, um, and not very much with those really large questions of why am I here and what's my purpose and why is life uh, unfair sometime. And I noticed with my own children um, certain experiences that made me want to try and touch that part of a child's life. What have you learned... um I know that you also have, over the years, have delved into the scholarship on this. I mean, and aside from that observation that I think many of us have made, that there are theological questions coming out of children. And even, you know, the question, why is life unfair, is an early question about morality and ethics, isn't it? And about human yes. nature. Um, and what have you learned? What do you know now about the spiritual potential, that, that spiritual impulse in children at, at different ages? Well, we do know that from research that all children by the time they are age five have a conception of God, whether or not we've talked about God to them as parents. And we also know that children ask these really large questions. And there seems to be uh, an innate spirituality, uh, a great sense of wonder, spontaneity, imagination, and creativity, and a connection to something larger than themselves. 
what children seem to lack is a language to give expression to that sense of something deeper. Hmm. And I think as parents, uh, our responsibility is to provide them with a language, an opportunity to have a conversation about these matters that they care very deeply about. Because I think what happens is if we don't uh, provide the language and if we don't encourage the conversation, then children stop asking. And just like if you don't exercise your muscles, they atrophy. Hmm. If you don't exercise your soul, I think your soul atrophies as well. You know, I've always been very intrigued. I, Maria Montessori, she's not so well known for her ideas about the spirituality of children, but she believed that children had a potential for um, spiritual, for a capacity for spiritual knowledge and growth that were kind of like a template that was similar to our capacity for learning language. But, I mean, how do we learn language but that people speak around us? Yes. <laughs> and that, that's kind of also what you're describing, that, that there is that 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 template there, that foundation, but but children need vocabulary to express that and to for that to grow. Or some, yeah, definitely they need a language, and the mm-hmm. question is, what is the language? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always claimed the language is story because that's how children uh, make sense of their world is through narrative and story. And I think the language is also through ritual and experience. The mm-hmm. earliest um, spiritual experiences that children have often come, you know, through routine and ritual that are repeated over and over again. And often when I speak to children and I ask them, you know, what is their, when do they feel the presence of God or if they could point to a particular experience, they often speak of rituals uh, or moments where they felt very close to their parents and it helped them give expression to what they were feeling. And and are you, um, is this necessary, are these necessarily religious rituals or would, I mean, many children now are not growing up in homes right. where there's a lot of formal religion in the same way that there may have been in previous generations. Do, are children still... Um, making religious observations on the basis of things that are happening in their lives? I think that children with or without religious instruction uh, have this deeper sense of something grander in the universe and have these deeper questions, whether or not they're involved in a religious community. On the other hand, I I do feel that uh, being involved in a religious community and and participating in some traditional rituals and ceremonies really helps uh, provide a language for a child to give expression. Perhaps it might be helpful uh, to maybe distinguish between spirituality and religion since those are terms that we often use uh, and don't always know what we're talking about. Mm To me, spirituality is a sense of transcendence, a sense of or a recognition that uh, there is something greater than ourselves and a perception that all life is interconnected. And an example of that would be from the Bible of Moses ascending Mount Sinai uh, to receive the Ten Commandments. But while he is up on the mountain, uh, he has a spiritual experience. And we know that because when he descends, his face glows. Something extraordinary happened up there. Hmm. 
the container for that experience is the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments is religion. Okay. It's a way of giving expression to that extraordinary sense of divine presence or transcendence that Moses felt. So in many ways, religion, in its very best form, sort of anchors those spiritual experiences uh, and gives them a language in which to speak. You know, I think that's a really helpful example because, uh, you know, a young couple said to me at some point recently, they had come to this, they are not religious in any kind of formal way. They felt, though, like they needed to be passing some basic religious tenets on, and they felt like the Ten Commandments were something that their children should know. Um, and they didn't remember all the commandments, mm-hmm. and they were embarrassed by this. And so, you know, in the same moment that they wanted to engage that part of their child's life, I think they felt inadequate. And um, I, But I think what you just, you just put actually the commandments in the container of a story, which suggested that there's something much larger going on in those commandments than rules. Oh, absolutely. I know I think much of religious education tends to be the transmission of a set of rules or Mm -hmm. dogmas uh, or information. But the very best religious education is much broader than that and gives children a sense of a greater presence. I mean, why follow the rules? You know, why do the rituals? Mm -hmm. Why pray? I mean, what's behind And children do ask those questions, too, don't they? They they All the time. Yeah. They ask questions that we often are not ready to answer, I think. And I do find parents who tell me, well, can I bring my child to you <laughs> when my child has this question? I don't know what to say, and you are the expert. And I always uh, respond by saying the children don't want to know what the expert has to say. They want to know what you're thinking. It's not so important that you have an answer What's important is that you engage in the conversation. And it's perfectly acceptable to say, this is a really hard question, and let's think about this together. Mm -hmm. Just talking is what's essential. Actually, someone once said that um, amateurs built the ark and experts built the Titanic, so don't <laughs> wait for the experts. Okay. <laughs> what other? I'm curious about what other advice you give parents who come to you. You know, and the basic question being, you know, how do I, how do I nurture this aspect of my child's being that I may not understand myself? Um, how do I give them experiences of the sacred? What do you say? Well, I say a variety of things. I think it's important if we're going to nurture the spiritual lives of our children that we have to nurture our own spiritual lives. So we have to take time in our lives to reflect, perhaps to be part of a community that talks about issues of spirituality, to read. we do the same thing when we're first parents. We're kind of clueless about what right. we're supposed to we do. do. I mean, <laughs> we read we books know. about how to feed them. We read tons of books how to uh-huh. feed them, you know, how to bring them up, how to get them to sleep, how to potty train them. Uh-huh. Uh, 
we ought to also engage in educating ourselves about our own spiritual lives because it's very difficult to share with children what you're thinking if you haven't been thinking about mm -hmm. these issues. Mm -hmm. So I think first we need to nurture our own spiritual lives. Um, and most of what we do in terms of nurturing our children's spirituality really happens when we're not or I should say really happens when no one else is looking, meaning it's not all planned for. It's kind of what happens every day. I mean, what do you do um, when you see a homeless person on the street? Uh, how do you respond when, you know, an animal gets run over on the road, a squirrel, mm -hmm. for example? Um, how do we act with other people? All these are messages to our children about what really matters in life, what's precious, um, what's more important than earning a living and uh, going through our daily routine. You know, I think society does a very good job in teaching us how to be consumers and a very good job in teaching us how to be competitors. The question I think parents are struggling to answer is how do we not just teach our children's minds, but how do we teach their souls? Hmm. And uh, that's a much deeper question. And I know we want our children to be more than consumers and competitors. Right. Uh, we want something much more. We want our children to be gracious and grateful. We want them to have courage in difficult times. We want them to have a sense of joy and purpose. And that's what it means to nurture their spiritual lives. You know, something that came through to me in reading um, some of what you've written is that, in fact, childhood is, is also a laboratory. I mean, we, you're right. We do think about what they have to learn academically and their, you know, the development of their motor skills and when, when they're learning to read. And we're very conscious of those things. Um, but the childhood is also a laboratory for... Um, instincts and and spiritual impulses that that underlie the great virtues i mean let's say mercy and compassion i think are virtues in every religious tradition i know of you talk about ch children having a an instinct to empathy and that that is something so important to cultivate i mean and that makes all these other great teachings possible in a sense later in life Absolutely. Uh, I think that, uh, well, children have wonderful capacities for being sensitive to others, uh, for imagination, spontaneity, creativity. They notice things that we don't notice. I, I remember uh, when my daughter was very little, uh, she's now well into her 20s, <laughs> mm. uh, that she seemed to notice when I was um, unhappy. Yeah. And she had this wonderful way of just coming over to me and sort of patting my hand and giving me a hug. Uh, I never said anything about how I was feeling, but she seemed to have this uh, intuition that uh, she needed to come and uh, show me some affection. Yeah. I mean, even when you say um, an animal gets run over, and we could kind of harden to that, but, but that is also a sense that children have of being connected to living things. Um, which later on could translate into a much larger sense of uh, ecological responsibility. I don't know. Well, I think 
That's true, and I think we have to help them realize that these are important insights. So, that for they example, have. When, that they have, mm-hmm. that, you know, we have seen many squirrels run over on the road mm-hmm. and we pass by and we don't think anything of it. But if we stop to say something that, you know, this is sad or yeah. there's some tragedy in this loss of life, if when a child pulls our hand and, and notices a butterfly that, you know, we're just too in a hurry to take the time to pay attention to, we need to stop with them. We need to acknowledge that this uh, recognition is very precious. Mm-hmm. I really have learned a lot uh, by listening to children. I learned about, a lot about my faith and uh, about a spiritual life by paying attention to what kids have to tell me. Say some more about that. What comes to mind when you, when you say that? I mean, it's an intriguing statement for you to make as a rabbi, I think. So. Yes. <laughs> well, let me see. Um, well, I was very struck by a young child uh, once when I told him a story that I had written about calling God uh, by different names. And uh, at the end of the telling of the story, I asked the children what uh, was their favorite name for God. And a young boy who had uh, whose mother had been suffering from breast cancer most most of his life, just stood up very uh, confidently, said, I want to call God healer. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was the most profound prayer I'd heard in a long time. And I spend most of my time mm-hmm. <laughs> praying with people and, and leading services. But this child touched a special part uh, of me at that moment, uh, and made me think about what what's most important, what's most what's most precious. But I'll tell you another story actually okay. uh, with my own daughter. I was going through a really difficult time and uh, in my life, and I said to my daughter, "You know, I'm not sure that I should still be a rabbi <laughs> because I don't know if I can believe in God anymore." And my daughter looked at me uh, without blinking and said, Mom, you don't believe in that kind of God. (laughs) And she was right. But I needed her to tell me at that moment. Meaning you don't believe in that kind of God who you couldn't believe in? Exactly. I don't believe Uh in a God who, you know, makes bad things happen to good people. Uh I don't believe in that kind of God. But, you know, in in moments like that, you forget. And sometimes you need a child to remind you. Mm -hmm. And I think children often remind us what's true and what's most important in our lives. You know, the... You you write a lot about prayer, and you just mentioned um, prayer. I actually think this is something that feels challenging for many people, whether they are very actively religious themselves and with their children or not. Um, there's kind of a sense that you should be, I don't know, praying at meals or praying before bed. <laughs> um, right. Talk to me about prayer with children and how you think about the forms that might take and what it means? Well, I actually think it's very important, but I also know it's very difficult. I don't think it's easy to pray, and I say that as a rabbi. 
I have forms that I can conform to and say, but what does it really mean to speak a prayer of your heart? But I do feel that it's very important to pray with children, mostly because our children are so bombarded with noise and activity, and there's very little time for silence and reflection. I mean, we do know that... um, Of all the questions that teachers ask children, teachers answer 80% of them Mm. because we abhor a vacuum. Mm -hmm. We don't like silence. And I think in moments of quiet and silence, children give us a glimpse of their souls. So what would it mean, for example, at night when our children are going to bed to sit with them and reflect And wouldn't that also be a prayer? Mm -hmm. And I know that when uh, my children were growing up, we used to sit with them at night, and we would say a traditional Jewish prayer. And then, you know, they would also add their own words. And I recall that my daughter would say, when I was very young, uh, I used to ask God to bless all the people in my life that I could possibly think of, and I didn't want to leave anybody out. (laughs) And then as I grew older, she told me, I decided that what I needed to do was say thank you. Mm. And I realized that if we hadn't provided that opportunity uh, or that space for that reflective moment, that would never have happened. And Mm -hmm. often I was going to add one other thing. I think sometimes people say, well, really, we don't know what to pray. Uh, And I often say, well, ask children if they would tell you a prayer from their heart. And then children are usually very clever, and they say, I don't have one. (laughs) So my response is, uh, well, would you mind listening while I say a prayer from mine? Mm -hmm. And I think that provides an example of what what does it mean to say uh, deep words. I don't think it has to conform to any traditional structure, although sometimes the traditional structure makes it easier. It's helpful, yes. It's helpful because Mm -hmm. you say, okay, I don't know what to say, but I've got something. But I think just say what's in your heart. Name your hopes. Name what you're grateful for. Name your fears. Hmm. That's a prayer. I think this observation you make about the importance of silence is so critical and really quite countercultural. There's a lot of now bemoaning how how we have overscheduled our children's lives. But, I mean, you're making the point that, that one thing that's lost in that is, is, is silence and that that is critical for, for the development of their souls. It's not a, an idea that I, I hear out there very much. But, I, yeah, I agree with you, and I, I think it's quite critical. In fact, in, in creating a new children's prayer book, uh, I made a special effort to provide some meditations so there would be moments of silence where children could just close their eyes and imagine because we just don't provide enough Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I think we find uh, as parents that when we sit with our children at night and we're quiet, they tell us all kinds of things they won't tell us during the day. But you do have to create that space. It, It doesn't necessarily occur naturally. I don't think it occurs. We're so busy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we rush through our meals. Uh, We rush from one activity to another. We're always talking. We we listen to, you know, music. We've got noise around us all the time. We really need that 
pause and the silence in our lives. And our children need it to begin to imagine and to think what's precious to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think even bedtime, I mean, I have thought at different stages in my children's lives as, of bedtime as the most stressful time of the day. <laughs> I mean, something to be gotten through. Um, but I think that's a really important discipline. Yeah, some people suggest that you do a morning ritual with children as well. And of course, in my experience, the mornings were oh, always much course. more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because there were so many things to get done, and we could never get it done. But somehow at night, there was this yes. quiet time. And But, you know, one of the books that I've written uh, ends with questions. And, uh, Is that God's I, Paintbrush? God's Paintbrush. Yeah. And I uh, remember a, a father telling me that he didn't usually read to his children at night. The, his, his wife did. The mother did. But one night, uh, he read, and he decided to read this book, and he decided to leave out the questions because he felt that it would take too long, <laughs> and it would be too long a bedtime ritual. Because <laughs> we're always on a schedule. We're on a schedule. <laughs> yes. And the child stopped him in the middle and said, no, Dad, ask the questions. Huh. Ask the questions. But the, had the child read the book? The child wanted to talk based on what he was reading. Right. He, she had heard the book before, and oh, she knew the questions, and he was I leaving see. out the questions. I see. And uh, what she wanted to do was have a conversation in this mm. quiet time when nothing else was uh, intruding on mm. their lives. You've written an interesting essay. I don't know if this was an essay or a sermon about reading. And again, you know, this this is a message that, that is out there, that reading is good for children. But but why reading is good for children spiritually? Um, and, you know, one thing you say is that it help, it, it it is an act of quieting the self. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we don't usually think of reading as a spiritual exercise. No. Uh, but I think it is because... In order to hear uh, a story, you have to quiet yourself, and you have to empathize with the characters in the story. And isn't empathy part of the spiritual life? Isn't quietude part of the spiritual life? And you also discover in the story that you don't have control. You might like the characters to do one thing or another. You might wish they wouldn't make one decision or another, but... You can't control the situation, and part of spiritual the spiritual life is learning that we are not always in control. Hmm. And also, if we are truly listening, then all the details matter. You know, it, it matters what the color of her hair is, or what he's wearing, or what the time of day is, and paying attention to the details of life is, is part of a spiritual life. Hmm. I want to ask you, you've, you write books. You are thoroughly grounded in, in Judaism, in Jewish faith, and, and you also write books which um, are endorsed by other kinds of religious people. You've been involved, I know, I've recently seen a book um, in some studies of which have brought together um, essays by people from many, many different traditions writing about the spirituality of children and parenting. Curious, um, I'm curious what 
are there common themes and impulses that you find running across all these traditions? I mean, one of the books I was looking at had just such a wide range of Muslim and Baha'i and Tibetan Buddhist and Judaism and many forms of Christianity. Are there impulses that, that, that these approaches share? And, and I'd also be curious to hear about differences and distinctives that have intrigued you and struck you. Well, I think there is a commonality when we talk about spirituality, we talk about what we share. I think when we talk about religion, we talk about how we are different huh. uh, in expressing that spirituality. I mean, all these, we have all the same deep questions. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody has the question of why, why life is unfair or why do we die or, um, you know, wh- how do we matter? What's our purpose? You know, is there something more in the world than who than we are. Every religious tradition raises that question and asks, how do we live a purposeful life? So I think we all begin with the same questions and the same quest. And what happens, the way in which we answer those questions is uh, sometimes different because our languages are different. Back at language, aren't we? (laughs) Well, we are. I mean, I really see religions as different languages to express our spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important uh, to recognize that some languages we speak with comfort and some we don't. Uh, we, We find a home. I mean, it's wonderful that there's so many different expressions of spirituality. It's just that we need to find the home that fits for us. And, and, and I, I that will sometimes t- be the home we're born into, but not necessarily. Right. And I always tell people, please explore the place you come from, yeah. the place you're born into. Uh, see if uh, that is a comfortable fit, because it many times... Uh, most times it is if we're willing uh, to explore it deeply enough and not to be discouraged because when we were young we had bad experiences. Right. So that would that would be your mother tongue, really, in a, in a way, to think about that. It is. It's, it is your mother tongue. But what you just said is important because I have heard many people say, um, I think this is a new, new trend in, in more recent generations. People say, I was so turned off by, you know, X or Y in my childhood, um, and I don't want to inflict that on my child, <laughs> right? And, and yet they still find themselves in the position of being a parent, having a child, and realizing they want something to give them. Um, so what do you, how, how do you respond to that? Don't let the people who gave you a bad impression of your religious tradition be the only ones to define it. You, too, are part of that tradition, and you're not just a descendant. You are also an ancestor, and you helped to create the future of that tradition. So give it a second chance. Uh, Many times we have bad experiences with particular religious tradition, but that is not the best of the tradition. We need to look to the best of the tradition. Because there are wonderful things uh, within religious traditions, and they give us, as I've said before, this language that allows us to speak. Uh, One experience from uh, my own family, I think, might be illustrative. Uh, When our children were little, we 
on the Sabbath, Friday evening, would always light Shabbat candles, Sabbath candles. And, uh, you know, I would wave my hands over the light and cover my eyes and say the blessing. And then we would take our hands and we would wrap them around our children and we would say a traditional blessing for them for the week to come. I never really thought much about it. It was a ritual Mm -hmm. that we did. But many years later, uh, when our children were away from the home, they would often call on Friday night just to get the blessing. (laughs) And they still remember the warmth of that moment. So rituals have that capacity, partly because they contain something greater than themselves, and also because they're routine. Children love repetition, Mm -hmm. and a ritual is uh, repetition over and over again, and they give them a sense of security and and comfort and familiarity, Uh, and that's so, so very important. So we shouldn't give up on our traditions just Mm. because we might have had bad experiences uh, when we were younger. Right. We just don't want to give those bad experiences to our children. No. And but and also um I mean it's true also that if we're looking for for ritual uh, those are going those are the obvious places to to find those kinds of forms. Um I also I also once spoke with a Montessori uh a teacher of in a Montessori high school and um he was talking about how important it is to well, I, mean, I think I may be mixing things up, but if here's the thing: if we if we don't, we had let's say let's say people who are um, alienated or estranged from religious tradition know what they're rejecting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's there's a way in which you ha- it's it's all right to give children have to have something to work with. Um, I'm not saying this very well, but in, in but it, there's there's a way in which if we just refuse to give them the whole because we have turned our backs on part of it. We're not giving them anything to wrestle with. I don't know if is that making no, sense. No, I think that's actually a, a great uh, <laughs> image because uh, I think sometimes we feel that religion is all about answers, but I really think it's all about questions and it's all about wrestling, that it's perfectly okay to doubt and to challenge uh, and to be open to more and more questions. I think sometimes parents get nervous when children ask all these questions, say, well, you know, I don't believe in God, I mean, as they get older. They, yeah. uh, and uh, this doesn't make sense to me anymore. But that's really part of the spiritual journey. If you don't ask those questions, you really haven't made the religion your own. You're just accepting what someone's told you. We need to ask those questions, and life forces us to ask those questions if we're really honest with ourselves. Mm. So I think wrestling with these, uh, with the tradition and wrestling with the stories, um, that's the most important part of the spiritual journey. Mm. It's not a smooth journey. And that it's okay to pass that wrestling on to our children as well. I think it's so important. In fact, uh, my son... um, said once in a paper he wrote about religion that the most important thing his parents gave him was the ability to think for himself and to ask questions, mm. not just to not just passing on the tradition and this is all there is, but being open to an ongoing uh, questioning. Right. 
you, I once had a student okay. tell me, I was going to add to this, yeah. I once had a student tell me when I was trying to present a different point of view than had been presented in the past, uh, students said, I want, you want to tell me what to think. And I answered, uh, no, I, want, I just want to tell you to think. Religion is not about, uh, you know, putting our minds on hold or our thinking on hold. It's it's engaging our minds as well as our hearts. Hmm. I'm I'm kind of wanting you to tell some of the stories that you tell. Um, there are a couple that have really struck me, and one is the story of God's name, and what I think is very um, moving about that is is that. You come out in a Jewish place, <laughs> I mean, with you know, with the idea of one God. I mean, really, the, yes. it's really the kind of the the core Jew idea. Um, but you get there by way of in a in a way that is very embracing of of human reality, of the spectrum of human reality, and and I I'm I'm very intrigued. I, I believe that those two things are possible both being rooted and being open to the world. I think it's a bit, it cuts a, get, a bit against the grain of some of the assumptions our culture's been living with for a while. So, I don't know. I, I want tell tell that story and, you know, talk to me a little bit about how you came to write that and what happens and what that means to you, if you would. Well, the book is called In God's Name. And it's probably one of the only stories I have written that came to me all in one piece. Hmm. I actually remember the night it happened. I couldn't uh, get to sleep, and the story kept repeating itself over and over in my head. And I decided I'd better get up and write at least a version of it down, or I would never sleep. Uh, and I had it came out of uh, a number of experiences. Uh, you know, certain children would say, you know, this is the name for God, and this is the only right name, and all the other names are not right. This is the best name. And I said, you know, I, this can't be right. And so I wrote a story uh, about uh, calling God by different names. It was also written about the time of uh, the Persian Gulf War when people were going to war, quote, unquote, in God's name. And I said, you know, I've got to write a story about this. So in this story, people call God by different names, each person naming God out of his or her experience. So, uh, you know, the farmer would call God creator of life. The artist who would sculpt out of stone would call God my rock. And the mother who would uh, care for her baby called God mother. And the daddy who held his baby hand called God father. And the child who was lonely called God friend and a variety of other names. And each time the names came up, people uh, in the story would say, well, my name is better than your name, and my name is best, and your name is wrong. And they would have this constant argument until uh, at the end all the people came together and they looked in a lake that was like a mirror, God's mirror, and they said all the names for God at once. And they realized that all the names for God were good, and they called God one. Uh, I use the idea of the lake as a mirror because there is a a statement uh, by the rabbis that says, God is like a mirror, and everyone who looks into it sees a different face. Mm -hmm. And I feel that children look into God's mirror 
We just need to give them a chance to tell us what they see. Hmm. Hmm. You know, another story um, that you that you repeat is about is it t- taken from a Hasidic tale about um, the boy in the forest. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> tell that one. Uh, it's a wonderful story. It's a. Uh, <laughs> a boy who tends to go out to the forest all the time, and the father is quite concerned because the forest, after all, is a dangerous place. So one day he asks his son, why is it that you venture so often into the forest? And the boy says, I go there to find God. And at that moment, the father is quite relieved because he knows you can find God in all kinds of places. So he says to his son, Well, you know, you can find God everywhere. God is everywhere, one and the same. And the little boy answers, yes, but I am not. (laughs) So there's so many places to find God, uh, and each of us has to go to a different place. The same place is not going to work for everyone. Right. When we started out, you talked about the importance of stories as a way to just to nurture this part of children's life and imagination, their spiritual imagination. Um, uh, talk about, you know, where do you find, where, sh- where would you recommend that people find stories? I mean, there, your books are out there. There are other books out there. You know, where would they look, people who have not been looking for this kind of story? Um, and, and then how do you... How do how much do you need to uh, to work with the child to understand the story? How do you how do you uh, how do you help them take the story in, or do you need to help them at all? Well, first let me uh, mention how you go about finding these books. Yeah. There there are tremendous uh, books on uh, children's literature on issues of spirituality. And they aren't just books that have God in the title. Mm-hmm. They're, bo- they're books that deal with things that really matter, the deeper uh, concerns of life. And I, I would go to a children's bookstore, and I would ask uh, for those books that deal with the deeper questions. Uh, and sometimes they will be religious books. Sometimes they will be secular books. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would say about finding good children's literature is the following. If it's not interesting to you, it won't be interesting to your child. It's not supposed to be like taking medicine. Right. It's not <laughs> like a, it's not. And also I would say a book shouldn't preach. Uh-huh. Uh, it should be a book that's open uh, to the child that seems to be in touch with where the child is and the child's experiences. Just because a book has a good moral at the end doesn't mean it's good spiritual literature. Right. Uh, it should be imaginative. And how do we help a child understand uh, a story? Well, when I began doing storytelling early on in, in my career, I used to tell a story and then I would proceed to say what the story meant. Uh, I thought that was my job as a rabbi, you know, to tell you what you were supposed to learn from this story. But I realized that as a storyteller, I was only telling people what the story meant to me. And I wasn't allowing them to develop their own relationship to the narrative. So I don't do that anymore. I tell a story. 
and I ask open-ended questions. Questions like, what part of the story did you like the best? Hmm. What do you think is the most important part of the story? And then the question that I like the best is, where are you in this story? Or what part of the story is about you? When we ask those kinds of questions, we get to hear what meaning our children take from the story. And we also get to learn where they are in their lives. And what a story may mean to them at one stage uh, may be totally different uh, than what it means a few years later. Yeah, which is true for all of us throughout our lives with stories and books that are meaningful. You quote uh, Shel Silverstein a lot, <clears throat> who, who I've yeah. never thought of as a spiritual writer, but of course, <laughs> there's so much there. I mean, here's, a, here's something that's quoted in, I think it was in a Shabbat um, service that you helped put together. There is, he wrote, there is a voice inside of you that whispers all day long, I know that this is right for me. I know that this is wrong. You know, that's something we could all be reminded of yes. <laughs> from 8 to 80. <sighs> no, absolutely. I mean, there is a voice, right? We hear it all the time. Sometimes we don't pay attention. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, I, did I cut you off a minute ago? You wanted to say something else about... Uh, oh, asking questions and yeah. stories. Yeah. No, I was going to say that there are stories that I uh, have known in the past that I never could tell for many years. I said, oh, well, this is just not my story. I, I don't really get it, and uh, it's not doesn't belong to me. Mm-hmm. And then years later, I say, oh, wow, that is some incredible story. So some life experience uh, has happened that made that story resonate with me. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens with children. Some stories resonate because of where they are in their lives, and some don't, but they may later on. Mm-hmm. So a child may carry a story with him or her for, for many years, and it won't really have the power that you want it to have until later, and you won't know that until mm. later. It's kind of part I think of the stories, inheritance we give yes, them. Like stories kind of sit with us, and right. then they come up when we need them the most. I think this is wonderful. I want to ask my producers behind the glass if they have some questions um, that they want me to ask you. Okay. <laughs> and I think I'm going to, I will be quiet for a moment. I'll be listening in my headphones. I can't hear you, Kate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is a good question. Um, all right. Let's say, and I think that this is a situation that is not t- really uncommon these days. Let's say there's a young couple. Um, religion has maybe is maybe not 
not has maybe not been too much a part of either of their lives and has not been part of their courtship or their marriage. Um, they have children. Um, they 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 don't have kind of their native traditions to draw on, and and then as they try to think about how to nurture this part of their child's life, they are not in agreement. I mean, they don't have a vocabulary for figuring this out or figuring out how to address this in their child. What would be your best rabbinical (laughs) advice on that? Well, I think it's important for them to decide together what they want to communicate to their child. I think it's confusing to communicate two separate approaches to religion or spirituality, because then when a child tries to choose, what the child is really choosing is between the two parents. Mm. Uh, And one day, you know, daddy might have been nicer than mommy, so I'll choose what daddy tells me. And the other day, mommy is nicer than Mm. daddy, and I'll choose what mommy says. So uh, I think that it's important to come up with a unified approach to how you want to nurture your children's spiritual life. Uh, And I, I would suggest just explore your roots. Just give it a chance. See if there might not be something there. Become part of a community where people talk about these issues. Just like there are other parenting groups that you talk about, you know, how do I get my child to go to sleep? <laughs> how do I, you know, all these uh, other really, you know, compelling issues uh, when you're a parent. I mean, talk to other people who share your common spiritual values, who live a life that you uh, value. Uh, I think, you know, we have um, all kinds of mentors for our children. You know, we have music educators and we have, you know, coaches and sports. We might look for spiritual mentors. Who are those people that live the kind of life that is gracious and compassionate and and kind and loving um, and courageous? Uh, Those are the kinds of people we ought to be talking to to Mm. see how we might uh, share that kind of life with our children. Mm. And then, of course, you know, there are lots. I, I wouldn't say, don't. there's no book that is an expert book. There, there are no answers to these really big questions. I think that's what everybody's afraid of. You know, <laughs> oh, I don't have the answer. And, you know, the people have thought about this for so many years. Not, that's not what's important. There are no absolute answers. Uh, there are questions, and there is the conversation, and there is the journey. I think if you can take the hand of your child on that journey, you not only enrich his or her life, you, you really enrich your own. Children open windows for us or can crawl through windows that we can't (laughs) crawl through. And uh, they open a part of our lives that uh, maybe has been dormant for a long time. Mm. Well, I think that's a great place to end. I'm just delighted with this. And we will also be able to to have some readings from the books in the show, which will be fun. I was just wondering if, you know, I just had this new book come out. Oh, well, uh, we can mention it. What, What is it? The Butterflies book, Butterflies Under Our Hats. Did you get a copy of I've that? I've got a copy of that, yeah. Okay. So that's your that's your most recent? That's the most recent. Okay. We'll and I, I don't know if I could just say a word about it. I don't know if you'll yeah. want to use it or not. But okay. uh, uh, Butterflies Under Our Hat is a story about luck and hope. And I wrote it at a time in my life where I wasn't sure there was hope. 
And so that's why I looked for that kind of story. Hmm. And it's the story of a town where uh, the town people feel that they've lost luck, and so they sort of give up on trying to repair any of the problems in the town until um, a mysterious woman comes and teaches them that they can capture a butterfly under their, their hats. And even when the butterfly vanishes in the sky, that there's a trace of the butterfly under their hats, and that's hope. <laughs> and with hope, they're able to begin to repair their town, even though things still still go wrong. And it was a story I really needed, mm. and I think that our children really need. So here's a story that you know doesn't really mention God at all, but it's a spiritual story. It's finding that place in ourselves that enables us to walk through the dark and to go on when we don't think we have the energy to do that. Um, And our children are in those places, too. They go through hard times in their lives, and they need to hold on to something, maybe the trace of the butterfly, that little piece of hope. Mm. All right. Well, I'm I'm glad you talked about that. Thank you so much. This is well, great. Um, Kate may come back at you with some questions by email. Um, you know okay. what I think might be really wonderful would be to have a list of recommended readings from you that we might put on our website. Um, I don't know, recommended books for children or recommended okay, books, books about. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of the books that I uh, recommend are often for younger children. They're kind of picture books. Is that yeah. okay? Because yeah, I, no, mostly that's, okay. that's what I, who I work with. Yeah. Uh, and then there are a couple of uh, books about, you know, about parenting. Spiritual yeah. About parenting. I think that would be uh, great to be able to point people towards. Not we wouldn't do it on air, but we would do it on the website. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. I mean, of course, I have my own books, but then yes. there are well, some we'll, others. In the- yeah, and your books will be listed anyway. But uh, um, so that would be part of the a big okay. part of it. Let me see what I can put together. When do you need that by? Oh, um, we couple weeks. Yeah, next week sometime would be great. Okay, and just email it to Kate. E- email it to Kate, and and um, I'd love to come to Indianapolis and meet you in person. Oh. So hopefully oh, that, that will happen. Wonderful. Okay, <laughs> all right. Yes, that'd be great. Okay, will I know when this airs here? Or how oh yeah, we'll that? let you know. I okay. think that we have a date set. Our f- our schedule is a very shifty thing, but I think we have a, a tentative date, and it's not very far off. A couple of weeks, right? I'm, I'm they're trying to tell me. Oh, oh, Father's Day weekend we're thinking about. But we'll let you know for sure. And we'll send you CDs and all that. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. Bye. Same here.